It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Ladies and germs, it's showtime! Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I appreciate you listening as always. This is episode 20. Episode 20 of the podcast. It's kind of crazy to think I've done 20 episodes now of the show. I I never really thought I'd get this far. I know it's not exactly the largest milestone ever, but for me, for someone who usually does not follow through on things, I am impressed with myself. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the podcast thus far. We're going to have some more guests on in the coming weeks. No guests today, unfortunately. Couldn't wrangle someone for the 20th episode. We will get someone on, though, uh, in coming episodes. I look forward to that. I've been in talks with some other podcasters around Toronto and in the movie world, so hopefully we'll get someone on interesting soon. But the surprise for the 20th episode is simply that we're going to have three reviews instead of just two. So I hope you enjoy that. I've condensed the reviews a little more, so they're not about 20 minutes each. They're going to be about 15 minutes, and I think there are some that are a little shorter. So in the spirit of getting to the reviews as quickly as possible, so we don't waste your time and we stick to the 45-minute guideline I've kind of set for us here. Uh, Let's get right to the review. So our first review is none other than Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Ready Player One is maybe one of the more fascinating movies I've seen this year. And that's not to say it's bad or anything. I know it's. It, I start off the review by talking, not, not by praising it, but by saying it's fascinating or interesting, which usually can be code for bad. And I, I don't get go so far as to call it bad. I think the worst complaint I have about this movie in terms of overall quality is that it is a bit empty. Okay, so we'll get into that in a sec. But of course, Ready Player One directed by Steven Spielberg, famously um, adapted from a book by Ernest Klein, and the book is is the same name. And it's interesting to note, and I think this has to be said early on, that the screenplay for this movie is actually written by Ernest Klein and Zach Penn. They kind of co-wrote the screenplay together. So it's kind of interesting to note, and I think... That does unfortunately mean that some of the problems that are in the book, and the book is far worse than the movie, the book is not very good. I mean, kind of an empty book itself, you know, a lot of, a lot of problematic tropes and just problematic things with characters and the treatment of women and the treatment of, you know, nerd culture and gatekeeping and all that stuff. And we'll talk about that in the review shortly, but the book is far worse than the movie in that regards. But I think by having Ernest Klein be one of the screenwriters, the movie almost has problems all on its own, right? So there are a few things that I probably will nitpick on that are maybe maybe nitpick is the wrong word. You might consider it nitpicking because at the end of the day, there are relatively small problems with the movie. But at the same time, I do think there are, there are problems with it, right? You can't just ignore the problems, right? So be warned, as usual, this does have a little bit of spoilers in it, but I don't think too much in terms of the grand scheme of things. But I will say... 
that I think it's important that we talk about the good parts first, because there are a lot of dumb parts in this movie, but that there are a lot of awesome parts too. And I think, I think the best part about this movie are those kind of references, right? Because I guess to back up a little bit, if you're not familiar with the, with the general plot of this movie, I mean, you're probably listening to this review if you are familiar with the movie, right? But if you're not familiar with the movie, Ready Player One is about Wade Watts. It follows this guy's life. He lives in Columbus, which is one of the fastest growing cities in the world, apparently, as we learned in the beginning of this movie. And he, along with everyone else, mostly in the world, lives inside, or I shouldn't, maybe lives is the wrong word. They spend most of their time, they live in the real world, right? They like to sleep and eat in the real world. But in this world, they spend most of their time in this thing called the Oasis. And the Oasis is a virtual reality world I shouldn't even say world, it's millions of worlds, right? But it's a virtual reality where you can take on your avatar, you know, you can look and be like anyone, any fictional character, a character of your own design, perhaps, anything you want, really, and travel this basically whole other universe from the comfort of your own room, right? And you can, like, you know, do races. The movie kind of goes out of its way at the beginning to show you, like, you know, you can go hiking on Mount Everest with Batman. You can, like, play on a world that's just for sports. You can, you know, you can cook. You can do anything you want. You can, like, be anyone you want, right? And I think that's the kind of, kind of crux of the matter. You can be and do anything, right? And because the real world is so crappy, many people escape the real world and go to the Oasis to have fun and do fun things, okay? So... The plot of this movie is essentially focuses on the Oasis and how the creator of the Oasis died a few years ago and left an Easter egg hunt, a literal Easter egg hunt. Whoever gets the Easter egg gains control of the Oasis itself and the control of this guy's company, which is valued at trillions and trillions of dollars. And of course, Wade, as the nerd who knows everything that there is to know because he's a nerd, has the knowledge to win the Easter egg hunt and... You know, there's a typical bad guy corporation who wants to take control of the Oasis and monetize it and so on and so forth. That's like the plot in a nutshell. It is interesting. And I think the reason it was so popular, at least the book, was because it's about kind of all of the useless things, you know, a quote unquote nerd knows. All of those useless, stupid things are come into play here, right? The things that no one else would bother knowing because they have no real value in the real world. He knows them, Wade knows them and puts them to use. And, you know, because he knows that, because of all the knowledge he's gathered over his life because he's a loser, he, you know, gets the girl and he wins the trillions of dollars and is successful in life, right? And I think it's kind of a nerd wish fulfillment. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed reading it. I have tons of useless knowledge about sports or about video games themselves, and you don't get through movies, certainly, right? Do this podcast, right? So certainly I can relate, but I think it's, I I think I can understand why it might be hard for some people to separate that from, you know, reality, right? And of course, it's hard because it's like this book and movie were basically made for all the people who maybe have problems relating to others or have problems with making friends or something. And all of a sudden, you know, and, and in this book, Wade has all the friends and he meets them online and they save his life and so on and so forth. Right. So we'll get into talking about the, the movie itself, but the, the best parts of this movie are the parts in the Oasis. I think that's easily said it there. The visuals are stunning. They're so, so, so stunning. I wish the whole movie could be in the Oasis, and I think for cost reasons is probably why a lot of it's not. And I mean, of course, they have to come out of the Oasis to do things in, the, in reality, which is also a huge part of it, of course, as well. 
Um, but it's still an interesting visual experience when they are actually in the Oasis, and it's really cool to see him, you know, kind of the cool camera angles and everything in CGI and, you know, all, all the various things, and it, that's easily the highlight of the movie for me. Although I will say in the quest for these three uh, for the Easter egg, uh, Wade and his friends have to go through three trials, right? And one trial is made apparent right off the bat. It's a kind of a race. You have to get to the finish line, and a lot of crazy stuff happens along the way. There's some cool references in the race itself. There's King Kong. We get to see the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, obviously also directed by Steven Spielberg. A whole host of things, right? Whoever gets to the finish line, uh, you know, wins the race, and no one can get past the final, like, obstacle in the race, which I believe is King Kong, I think, like I mentioned, right? So... Um, the second trial, though, I won't spoil it, but the second trial is uh, easily, I think, the best part of the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but it involves them, because in this reality, this virtual reality, you can go into any piece of literature, any work of art, any video game, any movie, right? You can go into those games and be a part of it and interact with it, right? Like, I can go into Star Wars and interact with certain scenes in the movie, which is really cool, right? It's a unique way of watching movies. And, I mean, if I'm being honest, if I lived in the Oasis, that's probably all I would do. But uh, Or maybe play sports. I'd probably play, play a lot of sports, catch the game-winning touchdown pass from, like, Tom Brady or Drew Brees or someone in the, in the Super Bowl. and Whatever, okay, but that's what I would do. The second trial revolves around going into a movie and kind of, you know, using the clues within the movie and the clue that, clue that, they, they, that led them there to kind of decipher where the next clue would be and so on. You know, it's a little like a little treasure hunt, right? And I'm not going to say what movie it is because it's really cool. Honestly, it's a, it's a classic movie and it, it changes the tone of the movie very quickly. I will say it's not a Steven Spielberg movie. I think it would have been really easy for him to do that, but he, he did not and he went through it with another very famous director, a contemporary, I would say, of Spielberg's, and uh, it was really cool. Honestly, that's, that is by far the number one part of the whole movie, even though the visuals in general, which are a part of this kind of recreation of a movie, the visuals are the highlight, like I said. That movie is the best part of the, of the film, the movie, ent- entering the movie, let's say. And uh, it's, a lot of people may not have seen it, especially in this generation, but I think it is a classic, and I think a lot of people will have seen it, right? It's a little bit of a change from the book, uh, the book had them go into a video game. Or, no, they had them go into a movie as well, sorry. It was called War Games. And, um, I mean, it's probably for the best they changed it. This movie is so much more recognizable than War Games. I'm, I still don't even really know what War Games is. I mean, I've Googled it, but I've never seen it. Whereas this movie, many, many, many more people have seen this movie, and it's, as it's, it is quite, quite famous. So... Suffice to say, when you get to it, you will, if you're a fan of this movie, if you have even seen it, all the recognizable beats and scenes from this movie and the sets are in it, and you will 100% recognize it if you go, if you watch this part of the movie. I mean, you will if you go see the movie, but you know what I mean. It's unfortunate that those two things, like the the visuals and this kind of recreation of a, of a film, are kind of like the only really good parts. There are some other interesting, enjoyable parts, like all the references, right? Like we get to see um, a squad of Master Chief Spartans, and then we get to see the rocket launch from Halo. There's a Borderlands sign. We get to see Tracer and Mercy from the Overwatch video game series. We get to see Batman at the beginning. You see Harley Quinn later on. Maybe even Batgirl, I think, you spot. You get to see the four Ninja Turtles, you know, you can see Chun-Li from Street Fighter. There's a Gundam featured prominently. Mechagodzilla is featured prominently. Mortal Kombat is featured prominently. Uh, Alien, Firefly, The Worms, Monty Python. Those two are kind of related. Back to the Future in a, in a huge fashion. And, of course, Back to the Future 
uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis, who is another, of course, contemporary of Steven Spielberg. Um, the Bike from Akira, the Jurassic Park T-Rex, like I mentioned, King Kong. Iron Giant is featured pretty prominently. You get to see a lot of Star Wars. Um, you get to hear about the Millennium Falcon, RoboCop, Chucky, you know, um, Gary Gygax, the guy who created Dungeons and Dragons, Minecraft, Starcraft. There's like, there's a lot of really cool references, but it's 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 kind of like a, oh, hey, I know that. It's like, oh, yeah, the audience, the reference. I, I know that reference, you know, like from the Avengers. And I don't know, it's just kind of a little... I don't want to say boring. It's not boring. That's not the right word, but it is like it's a bit empty, right? I, I think that's my my major criticism of this movie is that a lot of it is so empty. And there there are a lot of like funny little digs I can take at this movie. I mean, there's a, I think one of the more serious, I guess, for lack of a better term, serious ones is a lot of this movie takes place in the Oasis, but there is a point in the movie where Wade meets his friends outside of the Oasis, like for real in person. And his best friend, the character, his like avatar, his I believe his avatar's name is Parzival, right? And his best friend's uh, avatar's name is H, um, spelled A E C H H. They also meet Artemis, who is, for lack of a better term, the female lead character, right? And it just kind of annoyed me because this happened in the book too. But it's like he's instantly attracted to Artemis inside the Oasis because her character is like sexy and slender, right? And then H's character is kind of like a an orc, robot orc, Duke Nukem type character. I don't even know what the hell it is. It's like a little alien, gigantic hulking alien thing. And uh, Parzival's character is like, you know, look, mostly looks like him. It's like a, a, a normal looking dude with some crazy hair and some shiny face things, right? But for more or less, he looks like a real, like a normal person. Whereas H is a orc, hulk, orking thing and... And Artemis is like a slender, like, alien thing, right? And I don't know. They meet them in real life. And it turns out that Artemis... And, oh, and so Ar- Par- Parzival tells Artemis, I love you. And she's like, no, you just love the idea of me. I-, I disappoint everyone in real life. And then she, like, leaves. And then the next the next thing we know, they meet in real life. And what do you know? Artemis is a super attractive woman. And her only flaw is a slight birthmark over her eye. Like, are you kidding me? That's what you like. You think disappoints people. Like, I get people can be insecure about their appearance, but I mean, like, come on. The film made her as attractive as humanly possible. She was like a model, right? And then, and then the the, the twist is they meet H in real life, and it's a butch black woman. Like, I don't know. It just seemed to they just seemed to go out of their way to make like the best friend who who was kind of giving Wade all these warnings of oh she could be uh, really unattractive in real life. Oh, man. And then, like, make her super attractive and make H, like, not unattractive, because Lena Waithe, who's, like, you know, Masters of None, Master of None and so on and so forth from Netflix, but they, I don't know. It just seemed, it just seemed like a cop-out. It's like, oh, okay, well, no way Wade would be attractive to this black woman because she's, like, a larger person. But, yeah, sure, of course he'll be attracted to the skinny white girl, right? It, it was just a bit of a, a, bit of a cop-out, and it, it, I kind of I rolled my eyes so heavily. And then, of course, the first thing Wade does, having never met this girl before, the first thing he does is he kind of reaches out and puts his hand on her face, and he's like, you're beautiful to me. Like, are you, are you kidding me? Are you are you joking? Like I, I think I actually said that in the theaters. I think I got shushed, which is probably the first time I've been I've, that's happened to me. But oh my god, like that is painfully stupid. But of course, all the nerds who watch that movie who who are like, oh man, I, if only I could, if only I could do that, I would get the girl right. Like I don't know. It just it just seems dangerously dumb to have something like that and make it like okay, I guess, in the movie. I don't know. It's it's kind of dumb and. 
there's a lot of other dumb stuff in this movie, but that is usually like the dumbest part in terms of like stuff being not okay. The other stuff in the movie are, are dumb, but I mean, it's not like dumb in a in a bad quote unquote way. Like there's a part at the end of the movie where they're in real life, they're all in this like van and they're driving around uh, trying to escape the the kind of forces of this evil corporation that are closing in on them, right? And um, <laughs> it's like a hilarious part where like uh, Ben Mendelsohn, who is the bad guy, Nolan Sorrento, Nolan Sorrento is the CEO of this like evil corporation. Their van crashes, which is how they're like accessing the Oasis. And they crash in like the ghetto, which is where Wade is from, in the stacks, as they call them, of Columbus. And uh, Wade put out the call throughout the Oasis to kind of protect them within the stacks of Columbus. And this crowd of like 200 people gathers outside the crashed van as Sorrento approaches it, Right. And they're all like, yeah, like they look like they're going to, like they're basically standing there with their arms crossed and they're like, yeah, we're going to beat you up, Nolan. Like you come near this, you come near this van, we'll, we'll F you up, right? And then he pulls out a handgun and just holds it up in the air and fires it once, right? And they're all like, oh my God. And they all kind of back away from him. And he walks through, he walks through this crowd of what, 200, 300 people by himself with a handgun and he's just holding it up in the air and he's walking through no one no one's can tackle this guy no one in the in the ghetto of this gigantic city has a gun themselves once he walks past the truck or once he walks past the group of people they can't just shoot him or something like that like or they can't just tackle him or something like that i mean come on just like that's it, that is easily the dumbest part of the movie in terms of just plot Right? I mean, obviously he has plot armor, but what? Like, they're just going to let this man with one handgun that has at most 10 bullets in a crowd of 300 people just walk up to this van, and he's going to, what, murder, like, a group full of kids inside, which they, and which they all know? It was just, it was shockingly stupid. I'm just like, what is going on in this movie that, they, like, that, I don't know. What a dumb part. I don't know. It's just kind of silly. There's also, like, a, lot, a bunch of other silly parts. Like I mentioned the first trial is a race trial, and they, when they, they find the first clue by reliving moments of Holiday, the guy who created the Oasis, his life, right? And uh, they do that by um, going into the, like, the kind of, like, these archives, which he, and he's, like, digitized every moment of his life somehow. And uh, you can, like, rewatch it and search it for clues. And there's a part where <laughs> Holiday more or less looks at the camera and says, oh, if only we could go back, backwards, really, really fast. Really put the pedal to the metal. Like, are you joking? You might as well have just ended the sentence by saying, oh, and by the way, the first trial is a race. Go backwards at the beginning really, really fast, and you'll find out. And so, of course, the next race, Wade goes in, he drives backwards, and like some, like, it's not like he goes to, like, a, a, he teleports through a wall. A door opens as he drives backwards, and it just takes him to the, to the race, and he wins the, at the end of the game. Or he wins at the end of the race. And I'm thinking to myself, over five years, or however many years, you're telling me that of the of the billions of people who have logged into the Oasis, not one of them, not one of them, just a dick around, drove backwards? I mean, like, in video games since the beginning of forever, like, in, in Super Mario, if you, like, go backwards at the beginning of the level, you can find, like, one-up mushrooms sometimes, right? You're telling me that nobody ever in the history of this trial, in the five years, in the billions of people, no one just decided to just, even for fun, without knowing, just go backwards and see what happened? Because clearly that's all you needed to do. Like, come on. It was, it, it was just a little silly. There's a lot of other silly stuff, too. I mean, like, you know, there's a line where he says, a fanboy knows a hater. Ugh, God. Classic nerd, you know, righteousness there, you know. They all wear the hat. They sometimes they wear haptic suits, and there's a funny part where, like, uh, Wade kind of kicks the guy in the groin, and he, like, ke- keels over, like, cause he's, like, you know, it's, like, getting kicked in the groin. And I'm like, if that if that is the case, why even wear it? Like, why, bo- why wear a suit that would hurt you 
if, 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 if you're in like some in critical situation, just don't wear the suit. Go into the thing and don't wear the suit, right? I don't know. Um, and it's not like you needed to go to wear the suit to go in there because the, 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 the final level, final boss battle was on a level they had all been to before. Having been there, they, it's not like they need to have the fancy equipment because we see at the beginning Wade doesn't have the fancy equipment and after he solves the first trial, he has some money so he can, he can buy the fancy equipment, so on and so forth, right? So clearly you don't need the suit. So why would, they, why, like, why, would you, why would you go out of your way to wear something that would like, hurt if you get kicks in the balls? Like, that's just kind of dumb. Anyways, I don't want to keep going because there, there are so many other things with this movie that annoy me. But at the same time, it's fun because... It's, it's about video games and pop culture and movies and, you know, they, they make reference to Prince and Michael Jackson, too. Music is a big part of it. It's basically like a big 80s culture kind of rehash and they kind of sprinkled in some of the new stuff like Halo and Overwatch and on top of it to kind of make it more accessible, right, I think is probably the main reason why that's in there. Because the book is, most, is almost entirely 80s stuff, whereas the movie is like... 50% 80s stuff, and then also stuff that you would recognize because, you know, you're, you're alive in the last 10 years. So, anyways, I think I, I think if you are something, someone who listens to this podcast, if you like movies, honestly, if you just like movies, I think you would like this movie because it's fast-paced. It's not very long. You know, the characters are more or less blank slates. The characters are more or less stand-ins for you, the audience, right? If you, you could be Wade Watts, and it wouldn't really matter because... That's the point. He's not literally like a character, quote unquote. I mean, he is, if you, if you know what I mean. But he he's not at the same time because it doesn't really matter about Wade. It's it's uh, it's it's just a, a way for you, the audience member, and me to be able to imagine ourselves in this place with all the knowledge and saving the world and and uh, getting the girl right. Uh, so you know, if if you like those kind of things, then I think you will like. Ready Player One, just, I think, maybe go see it on a cheap night or something, or at least go see it with a bunch of friends. Like, it's 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 not worth going out of your way to seeing, but it is entertaining, if that makes sense. I, I wrote a review on it for okcool.ca, and I think I ended it by saying, it's kind of like fast food, you know? It tastes good when you eat it, and you look forward to it, and, you know, you enjoy it while you're doing it, but then afterwards, you know, you kind of feel a little sick, and you're usually not super filling, right? So I think that's kind of the general sentiment behind Ready Player One. It's fun. It's a, it's a fun time of the movie, but, you know, next week, you'll mostly forget about it. Let's keep moving. That was Ready Player One by Steven Spielberg, and our next movie is another similarly fun, kind of pulpy, campy movie at times. Still an interesting one. A sequel this time around, Pacific Rim Uprising. <laughs> It's important to note that this movie is not directed by Guillermo del Toro and is instead actually directed by Stephen DeKnight, who I think Marvel fans will actually know as the showrunner of season one of Daredevil on Netflix. So this is actually his feature film debut and del Toro did stay on as a producer of the entire thing. But I think it's important to note, like I said, that it's not directed by Guillermo del Toro. I wanted to repeat it one more time. And I I say that because the movie just, just doesn't feel like the original Pacific Rim, okay? It kind of feels like Pacific Rim Light, you know, like spelled L-I-T-E, right? And it's not just because a lot of the movie takes place during the day. That is a big part of it. A lot, a lot of the original movie took place in the middle of the night during, you know, it's, it's rainy, it's in the oceans, you know, it's like in the Ala- Alaskan 
seaboard. It's uh, it's uh, you know near Hong Kong, but a lot of it is at night or in space or underneath the ocean, right? So a lot of it is just simply dark. Whereas a lot of this movie, including the including probably let's see the three top battles of the movie, probably the three only major battles of the movie, even the first major action we see in the movie right off the top, all of those scenes take place in the middle of the day. And I and I don't know if that's like a uh, specific deliberate decision. I mean, of course it is. A most it is for most movies, those kind of things. But at the same time, it's it just makes the movie feel different. And I think that's just one of the reasons it doesn't feel like the original Pacific Rim. A lot of the other things too are the kaiju, less of the kaiju and actually more so the um Jaegers themselves kind of feel less weighty. You know, they feel less like they are gigantic infernal machines stomping along in the water and moving slowly and you you can almost feel the ratcheting of the arm as it leans back and you know hits a monster all of the robots move much faster they move they're just a lot quicker they're they just do things faster just generally everything in this movie is faster and i think that does take away from the from the overall film just a little bit i I don't want to say it's a huge problem i don't think it's a huge problem but i do think it just removes it, it removes itself from the first pacific rim in a very obvious but also understated if that if that makes sense i know those two words kind of contradict one another but they kind of go against one another in terms of how they feel, right? But uh, it wasn't just all those things. There were, a lot of the large problems with this movie, I feel like, revolve around the plot. I mean, it, it, first of all, it involves teenagers who have never piloted a Jaeger before ever in their lives, and in the few uh, training moments we've seen, they all struggle with them. Uh, but they also have some strange decisions by the writers in kind of a retcon-type move of the first one. And I'll, and I'll give you an example, okay? I'll give you an example. In the first movie, the kaiju are shown to be attacking cities all over the world, right? We see them attack Sydney and Australia. We see them go to after the Philippines. We see them go to San Francisco and Japan and Hong Kong uh, and Alaska, so on and so forth. The Pacific Rim, right, uh, as it's called. Well, in this one, they kind of go, they go out of their way to retcon the monsters as all having been traveling towards Mount Fuji in Japan, even though we know that's not the case. And it was the weirdest thing. Like, there's this part where the... The two actors, the two main actors, including the scientists, they all kind of sit there and they go, you know what, in order to defeat the monsters, we have to know their objectives, even though we know that the monsters are, you know, more or less piloted via genetic editing by these, like, what, monster alien, like these teeny little aliens who, like, live in another dimension or something. But regardless, they essentially just... They have this big map. There's like a hollow map that's like a map of the Pacific Ocean, I guess, and like the the coasts along the Pacific Ocean. And then they have all the monsters along their attack sites, and they just you just they just put, paint a big a big line in front of them, going straight, and and they just see where they all intersect, and they go, oh my god, all of the kaiju's are traveling to Mount Fuji in Japan, and you're like, no. That's stupid as hell. Why? We know they weren't. I mean, the, the monster in San Francisco gets to the coast of San Francisco and travels eastward. He travels inland, and they, they make a big deal about telling you about that, right? I don't know. It's just kind of... It, it, it's, it's, no one would have noticed that from the first movie, right? I mean, after what? After what? Five years of fighting the kaiju, no one would have noticed that. It seems a little uh, unlikely, right? We also learned that the minerals that are present specifically in Mount Fuji when combined with the highly reactive explosive kaiju blood will more or less cause an extinction event and make the world suitable for the aliens to live on. So the aliens drop in three kaiju and then... They use this technology that's present on Earth via like coercive efforts to like 
use their technology and like bond the three kaiju together into one like mega kaiju. And then the mega kaiju is going to climb up Mount Fuji, which is conveniently uh, just outside the last uh, outside the downtown core of Tokyo, apparently, even though it's not actually the case. But the plan is for this mega kaiju to just j- walk up Mount Fuji and suicide itself into the middle, and then it's going to like cause Mount Fuji to explode and will kill everyone on Earth. And it's just it's just all kind of strange. Someone definitely would have noticed that the the kind of directional efforts of the kaiju and, and and then on top of that we get some really bad acting especially from scott eastwood he's Clint Eastwood's son and he's just a charisma black hole and he keeps getting cast in things i don't understand he was in the most recent fast and the furious movie he was in suicide squad which was easily the worst of these movies don't get me wrong suicide squad's on, on another like next level bad one compared to pacific Rim uprising right but and he just, he just constantly turns in these not great, mediocre performances, right? Don't get me wrong. The guy has a look to be a leading man. He's an attractive human being, I think, objectively. But in terms of his acting performances, he's like the Sam Worthington of movies, right? He's like a cardboard cutout. If you if you took a cardboard cutout of Scott Eastwood and just put him in those scenes and everything, and everything else remained the same, the movie would probably be better because it'd be funny at least, right? But it just seems like he's trying to do like an, a, a, gl- a flinty... Kind of, kind of winky impression of his dad most of the time, and it's, that's not what makes for a good performance in the first place. But especially for this guy who sucks as an actor, it's it's just not great. You know, Sam Worthington, Dane DeHaan, and now Scott Eastwood—they're kind of all in the same boat of very wooden, cardboard-like performances, and it's just a little boring. At the very least, Keanu Reeves was like that, and at least he had things to fall back on like when he was younger like bill and ted's excellent adventure right and now he's kind of reinvented himself as this crazy action hero with john wick but i used to have the same criticism of, of keanu reeves and at the very least he had bill and ted's excellent adventure to show that he could do like fun things and i have not yet seen that from scott eastwood and anything he's done he just is the same kind of straight edge kind of boring guy it's just kind of sucks um and more on characters, I'll say this, even though they kill the only brown character, the only brown character, right? And they leave all the white people alive. Like, it, well, they couldn't spare one of the random four or five white characters, but they kill off the only brown character, the only single one that is not white or Asian, the only brown character, and they kill him. And they let all the other five Asian kids and the other four white guys live. And it's not as if any of the kid characters were particularly great. Most of them sucked, except for the main young actor, which we'll get to in a sec, but all of the other Makita characters, all the tertiary ones, they suck, okay? They're, they're the, easily one of the worst parts of this movie, and yet they kill the one brown guy. Oh, that really, that really annoyed me. I think I put my hands up in the movie theater, like, come on, not, it's okay. I didn't disturb anyone. I think it was me and my friend in the theater and maybe three other people who were all sitting in front of me, so didn't disturb anyone when I did that, but regardless, it's, uh, it, it, I, I don't know. The, the action is a lot of fun. I'll say that. The acting, like I mentioned, is not great. The action is a lot of fun. There's some great set pieces. We, get, we even get a Jaeger on Jaeger action in this one. Sounds kind of pornographic when I say it like that, right? But the, the Jaeger on Jaeger action is, I think, the best parts of this movie. And while I did just bag on the acting, the single best actor by far, by, by heads and shoulders, 
is John Boyega. Most audiences obviously know him from the new Star Wars movies as Finn, but he really gets to bust out his charisma here. He's just he's just absolutely delightful. I dare say he steals every scene he's in, but I don't think that's actually possible when you're the main character. But he just seems to be having fun with the character, especially at the beginning where we see him squatting in what looks like to be a mansion in a ruined Los Angeles, and he trades things for food, for other supplies, he hosts parties, he gets drunk. We see him uh, trade in an Oscar for a package of Sriracha sauce, absolutely hilarious. Then we, we see him scavenging in a in a shipwreck, which is how a, a wrecked, uh, Jaeger a scrapyard, I should say. And we see him, that's where he interacts with the next actor, the main young actor, uh, the female lead, I should say. And it's uh, he, he's just he's just fun to watch. He, he gets to use his, his natural English accent and he, he, has, he has very good comedic timing, which you've already seen in Star Wars, but he uses it to greater effect here in Pacific Rim Uprising. And he's definitely the highlight of the movie by far, you know? The main young actor, like I've mentioned a few times now, is 20-year-old Kaylee Spaney. And, and she's, you know what? She's not so bad. I usually can't stand the kid actors if that's not apparent uh, in most movies. And she's better than most, which I feel like for me is a high is a pretty high compliment. The, other, the others are still dreadful. They get more screen time than they deserve, but at least they're not the main characters. Charlie Day and Byrne Gorman uh, return as the characters from the first movie. Uh, scientists, you know, who are still somewhat at odds with another, who are, you know, working as friends. And there's a great twist in their storyline. One, that, Honestly, one that I didn't really see coming. Um, Jing Chan uh, is probably the only newcomer to the movie. She is kind of the ho- the the head of this major corporation that Charlie Day's character works for. And then uh, we also get Rinko uh, Kikuchi, who returns as Makomori from the first one. She's the only character other than Charlie Day and Bern Gorman, Gorman rather, who return as uh, their characters in the first one. And I will. I don't think this is a spoiler to say, but um, there is no Charlie Hunnam. There's no, there's no surprise cameo. No Charlie Hunnam in this one. Um... And uh, don't worry, though, uh, they got uh, Clint East, or Scott Eastwood rather to replace the boring white guy. But uh, Charlie Day and Bert Gorman, uh, I think they're, there's, there's another, they're another highlight of the movie for me. They were pretty funny in the first one. I think overall this movie just is not as good as the, as the first one. I think that's pretty clear, right? It's the There's just less action. There's more talking, talking, talking. They're more annoying characters. They're not as many kaiju. So I think if you put all that together, of course it's not going to be as good as the first one. It's kind of like... If this this is like if Pacific Rim, the first one, was turned into an episode of the Power Rangers, you know? Everyone gets flung around the city of Tokyo like ragdolls, all the five Jaegers, even though we get to see them a number of times, you know? There's those three kaiju that, like, merge together. There's a, actually a fun bit during that point, after the after the kaiju merge, merges together. There's a fun bit where Eastwood and Boyega, they're piloting, like, the main Jaeger together, and they use their gravity cannon to pull buildings down on top of the mega, like, Voltron kaiju, and they're just knocking down building after building after building, and Eastwood yells, how many more buildings can this thing take after, as if they're not themselves essentially destroying the city of Tokyo single-handedly. Like, they, I want to say they do more damage than the actual kaiju do, but, uh... I don't know, whatever. It, it, like I said, it's it's like Power Rangers. You you just assume that after the movie they rebuild Tokyo bigger and better. Not, a lot a lot of people seem like they were injured. They everyone kind of gets into their underground shelters. They're probably going to be trapped down there for a long last time if if the rubble is any indication. But I guess they can always rebuild it. It's it's just it's just silly at times, you know. But there are some genuinely good moments, even if they are a few and far in between. Okay, so if I had to boil it down, I'd say. If you like senseless, quippy destruction with a sprinkling, a sprinkling of tweens, then you are going to love Pacific Rim Uprising. Okay, this is kind of a 
video game movie adaptation sandwich, if you will. The first movie was Ready Player One. Our kind of Oreo filling is Pacific Rim. And now we have another video game adaptation in Dwayne Johnson, or as you might know him, The Rock's Rampage. Hands up, we back in, born in the rage, untamed, break free, beast out of the cage, sky raining down flames, it's a war in the heavens, a beautiful scene in the night, behind light, and much like that, when I'm dreaming, I'm in flight. Thank you to Kid Cudi for that original song for Rampage. I haven't actually listened to Kid Cudi in a long time, it feels like, but there you go, Kid Cudi for Rampage. You know... Over the years, there have been a lot of disaster monster movies that have provided, you know, a crazy spectacle on a grand scale, right? We've seen Independence Day with aliens. We've seen Deep Impact with asteroids. We've seen Godzilla with, I guess, Godzilla. And we've seen The Day After Tomorrow, uh, I guess, Climate Change, I think. You know, the list goes on. And I think, I think Grand Page can almost definitely be added to that list. Maybe not better than any of those four movies, but... It's entertaining, even if it is a bit mindless. So this movie, The Rampage, not The Rampage, just Rampage, it stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and it's actually an adaptation of a 1986 arcade game. You know, actually had an arcade cabinet. You can go to arcades when those still existed, right? Its success spawned the 1987 sequel, Rampage World Tour, which was later uh, ported to home consoles, right? For, you know, you know for your PS1 or your, your Sega Genesis. I, maybe, I, forget, I think it was the PS1 era, I, I believe. And uh, that that actually led to more games, including exclusives for consoles such as Rampage 2, Universal 2, or Rampage 2 Time. And you know what? The plot is pretty simple of this movie, right? Uh, the Rock's character, David Okoye, attempts to stop the military from killing his mutated primate friend, George, which is an albino, or who is an albino gorilla, going on a, you guessed it, rampage through America alongside his fellow you know, mutated creatures, a massive wolf and a dinosaur-like crocodile. And I, I'm not sure if it's a crocodile, is it an alligator? It, it, it was it was found in the Florida Everglades we see at the beginning of the movie, so maybe that like, has a clue as to which one it is. I don't care enough to go check, but crocodile or alligator... And I believe in the video game, we know, we know the, we know the uh, albino gorilla's name is George, and uh, there's a funny scene, I shouldn't say funny, but kind of a winky scene to the audience where they, they name the wolf uh, Ralph, which of course leaves Lizzie for the lizard monster, as in the video games, right? The three characters you could pick in the original arcade car- uh, game were, of course, George, Ralph, and Lizzie, right? So anyways, it all, it all culminates, all their action, all the crazy stuff they do culminates spectacularly in downtown Chicago. And honestly, it's a really, it's truly a CGI sight to behold. I think that's one of those few movies that you should go probably go see in 3D. Or if you don't go see it in 3D, at least go see it in IMAX. Because I, I went to go see it in 3D, but on a normal size screen. And the, the scene with the Sears Tower in Chicago is just, honestly, it's really cool. It's, it's on the level of watching Shockwave and his worm thing destroy... I, guess, I actually think it might be the same building now that I think about it. I'm not sure if it's the Sears Tower, but he destroys another building in downtown Chicago uh, in the third Transformers movie, third Michael Bay Transformers movie, I should say. And um, it's really cool looking. It, 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 I admit I was entertained. And it does admittedly trade on nostalgia pretty heavily. It even features the two ar- arcade game cabinets in the background of one of the shots. Like it's, in, it's, in that, it's in that location consistently. It's, in, it's like an office or something. But you know what? 
Rampage is a fun game, but I don't think it's exactly the most beloved game that anyone has ever played, especially from that era of video games, right? I think there are more games from that era, like Mortal Kombat and stuff, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that people, I think, enjoy more and are more famous than Rampage. So I think you 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 could go into this movie not knowing anything about the fact that it was based on a video game, and you'd probably, you'd probably be fine, honestly. like there, it, There's no real references to the video game other than the fact that the creatures, George, Ralph, and Lizzie, are called that. And Lizzie is not even... They don't even actually say Lizzie at any point in the movie. I assume in the, the video game... It's been so long since they've played it, but I assume in the video game they call her Lizzie because she, she's a lizard, I guess. <laughs> it's a lizard. I don't know if it's even a girl. We confirm it's a girl. But regardless... Uh, you know, it's a it's it's action heavy. It's it's a lot of fun at points. Although it does have some dumbass parts. Uh, I'll say this: it's re- very reminiscent of 2015 San Andreas, and it's not shocking considering that movie also starred The Rock. It was also directed by Brad Payton, and it was also written by Carlton Cuse. Right, so the trio clearly reached into the same bag of trips for ram- uh, tricks for Rampage and just replaced you know quote unquote natural disaster with quote unquote mutated animals. Right, it's more or less the same result, albeit on a smaller scale because these are these three monsters, which is a versus is an earthquake that destroys San Andreas, right? So, or or destroys San Francisco, I should say. Uh, the San Andreas fault line is what it's called. But anyways, uh, I think you might expect this. You might actually go into the movie theater knowing this, despite having not read any movie th- movie uh, reviews or listened to this beforehand. But I will just confirm it with you: the acting is more or less non-existent in this movie. It, it's the, it's just not present. There is no acting to be had in this movie. You know, it, and it's not. A bad thing. I mean, the audience is not here to see uh, Oscar-worthy performances. It'd be kind of interesting if there was an Oscar-worthy performance. I don't even know what what an Oscar-worthy performance in Rampage could have looked like, much less should have looked like or would have. I don't know, whatever, right? But the audience is not there to see that. They're just they're there to see gigantic monsters destroy helicopters, tanks, and buildings, and scream and yell and fight each other eventually, right? They're not there to see the Oscar stuff, right? So. Even with that in mind, Johnson is usually is his usual, I should say, charismatic self. You know, he just fills up the screen with his presence, both physical and otherwise. It's so hard to deny that The Rock has this certain I don't know what, right? In terms of je ne sais quoi, right? Uh, in terms of his his attraction as an actor, right? He is just so entertaining to watch. Even the really bad movies, like The Tooth Fairy and stuff, he's fun to watch. He, I think, I mean, one of my favorite Rock movies since we're on this subject is. Uh, the game plan when he plays the selfish quarterback who plays the Boston Patriots and or the Boston Rebels that's called right. Boston Patriots was actually a real team before the New England Patriots, but the the Boston Rebels and he he's their star quarterback and then he's you know kind of an asshole. He's selfish. He's rich and what he doesn't care about anyone else. And then he you know discovers that he has a daughter and his his a former girlfriend uh, who he had this child with died and you know she she comes to be with him and it changes his outlook on life it's a family movie it's a disney movie right but still it's an entertaining movie and the rock i guess what i'm trying to say is the rock can make any movie entertaining that's what I feel. I, I'll go see any of his movies. Central Intelligence was another really fun one. I don't think he, he's had some real stinkers, but even the stinkers, I don't think he is the worst part of the movie, if that makes sense. But anyways, uh, the other actors, Naomi Harris, who was in Skyfall. She was in Moonlight last year. She was nominated for an Oscar. She, of course, was uh, Tia Dalma. I think a lot of people would have seen her in uh, who, <laughs> at least the audience that overlaps with Rampage. I think a lot of the people would have seen her in Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3, where she is uh, Tia Dalma, right? Uh, who later the sea goddess Calypso, right? She fills in as geneticist Dr. Kate Campbell, who uh, helps create the pathogen or whatever they wanted to call it 
that initially mutates the creatures in the first place. While Canada's own Malin Ackerman, Watchmen, you might recognize her from, joins as her former boss, Claire Wyden, you know, the CEO, bent on weaponizing it all for profits. And uh, Ackerman's uh, actual, her uh, fellow Watchmen alum, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, also hangs around as a mysterious, you know, government spook, I guess, from the OGA, other government agency, as they joke around, complete with cowboy accent and pearl-handled revolver. You know, I think it's, I think it's pretty easy to say the scenery is chewed pretty thoroughly, you know? And, uh, look, the, the movie, it, it's, this is a, sh- this is gonna be a short review because there's just not a lot to say about this movie. You know, the interactions with, between George and Okoye are perhaps the most entertaining parts, which span, you know, there are multiple sign language conversations and a lot of, like, ooks and ox by the, by the gorilla through the film's, you know, hour and 47 minute runtime, but they're just, they're just too many human characters in the end. There's the sub and military colonel, there's the CEO's dumbass brother, there's the two lab assistants, the hot one, the hot female, and the dumb male, right, who's, for, for a movie that is trying to sell you on the premise that, come watch monsters blow things up, it just takes away from it, right? Why would I, why do I want to watch this hot girl flirt with the rock when I, when I could be seeing a mutated gorilla throw cars at a, an American U.S. military chopper, right? I want to see that. I don't want to see this girl's, like, I don't want to see this girl. I, 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 frankly, I don't care. They could have had no women, they could have had no humans in this movie entirely, and it would have been that much better, because that's what you're going to go see, right? And I, th- I just think in, in, in closing, any audience member that's decided to see Rampage in the first place, they have already accepted certain things about both themselves and about what's to come on the screen before the first trailer even shows up in the theater, right? You know what you're getting. You're not going to be surprised by what you get. You're probably going to like it if you go see Rampage because you like those kind of movies in the first place, right? So if monster-fueled destruction is what you want, then Rampage delivers and you won't be disappointed. Now, we'll say on the scale of, like, Armageddon to... This past year's Geostorm, I would say, unfortunately, lands a little closer to the latter. But you know what? It's a fun few hours, so you might as well just buckle up and enjoy yourself. That's it from me today. See, we got through all three reviews. We got through all three. Banged them out, as we like to say in the sports industry. Banged it home. No, I, I don't think people actually say that. I think that I just, I've heard people say that about goals. So I guess maybe you can, can, you know, you can bring it over to the movie. No, probably not. I won't say it again. I'm sorry, but we did get through all three reviews today. And the, I think the movie is next on the docket. Uh, just a little over 10 days away from the time of recording is the Avengers Infinity War. So I think we'll be giving a, its own episode to the Avengers universe. We won't just talk the Avengers, of course. We'll talk about all the decisions and outcomes that will be coming out of Infinity War. And we'll talk ahead to the upcoming Marvel movies. I think there's one more coming out this year. There's some coming out next year as well. We got Captain Marvel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, and of course Avengers 4 is coming out next year as well. So lots to talk about after Infinity War, hence its own episode. But for now, this has been the Showtime Movie Podcast, episode 20. 20 episodes. I'm Show, and as always, thank you for listening. Have a good night. Showtime.